Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, you know, it's really interesting. You get really familiar with places and it feels weird not to have those lights on. So uh, we're dealing with some technical difficulties from the storm. Uh, so some of you are, are new here and you might not uh, know this about me. So about uh, two years ago, um, two uh, young men, uh, two teenagers, were fleeing Afghanistan for their lives. And they end up on a plane, ended up in America, and ended up moving into our house. And so many of you have been praying for them for two years. And uh, so one of them, uh, those prayers were answered. His family is coming to America. Uh, and so we're really excited. And if you remember, a little less than two years ago, we put together a refugee support team uh, that co-sponsored an Afghan family to help them get settled in the U.S. And we're doing that again uh, with my son's family as they come to the U.S. So if you'd like to be a part of that, please come see me. We'd love to show them the love of Christ and minister to them as they adjust to life in America. And also as I drove home, uh, so he had his birthday last week and, and my older son, who's now moved out, uh, came home for that. And I got to drive him home right after the tornado stuff. So that was fun, uh, dodging trees and going through stoplights where people don't remember that, you know, you're supposed to stop if it's the light's not there. Anyways, uh, but many of you have been impacted by the storm. As mentioned, Kurt is taking a team out right after the service and then after the discipleship hour. So if you'd like to help our neighbors or at least go assess some needs with them, we'd love that. And also, if you're a member of our church and you have needs, let Kurt know, let, let me know. Or if you have neighbors or coworkers or people that have needs from the storm, we would love as a church to unfold them and to support them because we know that it's caused some real difficulty for people. So we just uh, want to be supporting those in our neighborhood. So let's pray and we'll begin. <clears throat> Dearly Father, Lord, you are so faithful. <laughs> we know you are sovereign and we can sing those promises knowing that you're faithful. And today, as we open your word again to the story of Exodus, Lord, we're so thankful of what it teaches us about you, of the questions it causes us to ask. Lord, we see your faithfulness time and time again. So, Lord, we pray that as we open your word again today, that you will change us through it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been in a series of Exodus, and if you remember, we started the series by looking back at Genesis 15, when God made a promise to Abraham, and in that promise, he said, you are going to go to a far-off land, and you are going to live there for 400 years, and you're going to be mistreated and enslaved. And the book of Genesis ended with Joseph's death, and you wonder, what's going to happen next? And the book of Exodus begins with the word, and. It's like a sequel to the book of Genesis. And there was this Pharaoh who had forgotten about Joseph. And he got really worried because the nation of Israel had grown to be this huge nation. And he was worried that if a foreign nation came and attacked, then, then they would just recruit the Israelites and Egypt would fall. And so he started to mistreat the Israelites. He started to enslave them. And even to the point where he started to tell all the Egyptians if there's a baby Israelite boy born, just throw him into the Nile River. And in that time, Moses was born, and God protected Moses, and God raised Moses up to be a leader. And then Moses was 40 years in Egypt, and then 40 years in the wilderness, and then returned to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. And in his confrontation, 
Pharaoh made it harder for the Israelites. And they cried out to the Lord, like, why did you even come? Not that our life was good before, but it was better. And then God miraculously worked through the ten plagues to cause the Pharaoh to say, okay, you need to go. (laughs) We've had enough of you. And so we come to the narrative today. And before we come there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where the only thing you could do was pray? You had no way to fix it. When Joshua was four months old, he got RSV, and I've never been more scared ever in my life. Um, Having a four-month-old who couldn't breathe well, having to go to the ER, having to put the mask on him to get treatments, and just being, I just remember being terrified. Those moments, just crying out to God, going, God, you are the only one that can save him, and knowing that there was nothing I could do. See, in today's narratives, the Israelites are going to find themselves in a place where there is nothing they can do. They need God to intervene. If God doesn't intervene, they're done for. They're dead. But they learn in the midst of that that God's way is the best. So go ahead and open to Exodus 13 in your scriptures. We're going to be starting in verse 17. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along here on the screen. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Now the interesting thing here is they leave in battle formation. That's kind of what the Hebrew implies here. Now we're going to see the importance of that in a few minutes. But the most direct route to Canaan would have been north on the coastal highway called the Way of the Sea. Here's a map. And this was Abraham's travel. And you see Abraham traveled right down on the Way of the Sea. Uh, We have a history of the Pharaoh attacking the Hittites on the next map here. And Pharaoh took the Way of the Sea. Uh, This was a, a common, easy road and Uh, The Egyptians would have had defenses along here. But to take this path to Canaan, it would have taken the Israelites about two weeks. Two weeks. Remember how long it took them to get there? Forty years. But if they went straight to to, to, to Canaan that route, it would have been the shortest journey, but God had a different plan. Now, If you remember, I talked about Egypt being one of the most fertile lands in the world. And so because of that, it was a place of great prosperity. And because of that prosperity, many armies, nations would want to invade Egypt. And so they would come this way. So along this line, Egypt would have put uh, defenses, fortresses, things like that. So if the Israelites went this way, they would have had to go through, through the Egyptian forces. And then the scriptures say, and then they also would have had to face the Philistines. And then they also would have had to face the Canaanites. And, and God knew that they weren't prepared. In fact, in Numbers 14, the first time they get some real resistance, what do they do? They said, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. (laughs) They had forgotten how bad it was. So God took them on a different path. God's way isn't always the shortest way. It isn't always the most intuitive way. But it's the right direction because it's God's direction. The question that comes to mind when these things happen is, Do you believe that God knows what he's doing? 
do I really believe that God knows what he's doing? See, in the day-to-day when things are going well, it can be easy to say, okay, yes, I'm walking along God's will. I'm walking along His plan. He knows what He's doing. He's protecting me. When, when the tree falls next to her house and not on her house, it can be easy to see, oh, God is protecting me. But what happens when the tree falls on the house? What happens when the pregnancy ends in a loss? What happens when the cancer isn't healed? We often find ourselves doubting, is God's plan the best? Is God's path the best? Is God's route the best? Along those lines, do you trust that His direction is best? We'll find out in a moment that the Israelites have the same doubts that we often struggle with. So we continue the story. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. We see God's faithfulness. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Joseph believed that God, the covenant-giving God, was also the covenant-keeping God, and he believed that one day God would keep his promise. The Israelites would go back to Canaan, and that they would take his bones. But the amazing thing about the story is not just God's faithfulness, but the presence of God. Verse 20, after leaving Sukkoth, they camped on Etham, on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So as they headed out, God's presence was there guiding them. Now throughout the Exodus story, it's interesting, these liberal scholars try to come up with natural explanations for everything that happened. If you remember in the plagues, I talked about how they had this, you know, hypothesis that there was a flood and the flood led to the frogs and the frogs dying led to the led to the gnats and all this stuff and they use all these natural explanations for it and later we'll see they're going to try and say well it wasn't really the red sea it was the reed sea and they're going to try and make other explanations but here's the thing what in the world could this be other than god did they see a volcano at night just every night when they were traveling a volcano erupted during the day was it this tornado that they were following No, this was the very presence of God leading them by day and by night. Isaiah 63, which Ben just read, says the Holy Spirit was guiding them. God's presence was in the cloud. Now, it's possible the cloud served multiple purposes. Not only did did it guide them, but some scholars have even argued that what happens in the wilderness at night? Well, it's cold. And so maybe the pillar of fire provided warmth. What happens in the wilderness during the day well it's really hot maybe the cloud provided some cover and shade we don't know that for certain but the point is that god was present with them now in the midst of this when we read these stories the temptation can be to be like god why don't you do that now (laughs) right now god i need a cloud i need a pillar i have this decision coming up in my life it wouldn't be awesome if you just were to point the direction could you just just show me like this pillar, like this cloud? Or couldn't you be like the, the burning bush, you know? I would love to one day walk out in my backyard and have my 
Well, I probably wouldn't love to have my bush on fire, but if it was on fire but not being consumed and the Lord speaking to me, I would love that, right? God, would you just give me clear, spoken word to what I'm supposed to do? But I often think if, if we went to heaven, hopefully if you put your faith and trust in Christ when you go to heaven, you go to Moses and you go, Moses, what was it like to see the pillar of fire at night, the, the cloud to follow? What was it like to talk to, to God in the burning bush? And imagine Moses saying, what was it like to have God in you? See, Jesus himself said, it's, it's better for you that I go away because I'm going to send the counselor with you. That's weird math to me. I can't imagine being a disciple and having Jesus say, it's better if I go away. But the math that Jesus is saying is, it's better for you because you will have God with you. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. We have something that, that Moses didn't have. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did come on certain people, David and some of the prophets, for miraculous tasks to empower them for ministry. But we have the Holy Spirit with us. In James Hamilton's book, God's Indwelling Presence, he writes this. I got the quote on there. In the Old Covenant, God faithfully remained with his people, accompanying them in the temple and the tabernacle. In this story we see in the cloud as well. Under the New Covenant, the only temple is the believing community itself, the church. And God dwells not only among the community corporately, so now he dwells among us as we gather, but also in each member individually. As I just mentioned, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, it's good for you that I'm going away, because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. See, Jesus knew a very important truth. God's presence makes all the difference. God's presence made the difference in the wilderness. God's presence made the difference as the Egyptian army attacked And God's presence makes the difference in our lives. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite of Baal or Baal-Zaphon. Now, I have this map here, and, and no one really knows where these cities are. The cities along the Red Sea were, were changing a lot as the, as the sea moved, and so people have argued for different places. Uh, if you look in your Bible, there's probably a whole bunch of different maps. This is one map. <clears throat> um, it's possible we don't know where Mount Sinai is. Now, if you remember, when Moses was in the wilderness at Midian is when he was at Mount Sinai. Midian's over here. So it's possible Mount Sinai could even be here and the, the Red Sea crossing could be here. They could have crossed here. They could have crossed any different places. The point is we don't know exactly where these cities were, but they are real cities. This is a real historical document. Now what God's doing is he's given the Israelites a horrible military strategy. I love... I love strategy games. I love like risk and those kind of things. And I love you map out and you're trying to come with the best strategy. And what God basically did is math was I'm going to execute the worst military strategy possible. Because when I do that, I can show my power and my authority. If you remember Gideon and Judges, they were going up against an army of 135,000 people. And they had an army of 30,000 people. And God said, 30,000 against 135,000, you could go back and say, look, look at how good of soldiers we are. And so God dwindled that army all the way down to 300 people. 
And then said, okay, now you have few enough that I will get all the glory. And God basically said, this is a bad strategy. Verse 3, Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion. They're hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Egypt would think that they had set a trap for the Israelites. They would think that they were toast. But in reality, God was setting a trap for the Egyptians. This isn't the only place that God does this. Last week, we had a member of Chosen People Ministries walk through the last week of Jesus. And one of those elements of the last week of Jesus is Satan came upon Judas and led him to betray Jesus. Satan thought... This is my moment of victory. (laughs) And so as Jesus was crucified, Satan was standing, what he thought, victorious over Jesus. He had struck the heel. But he didn't realize that three days later, God's infinite plan, God's sovereign plan, was that Jesus would rise the dead, conquering sin, and providing a way for us to have eternal life. Jesus had victory in the midst of Satan's thought of victory. This is the main theme for this section of Exodus. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And Romans 9, the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. This is the whole purpose of all of this. That I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Throughout this story, we see God doing what he was doing So the Israelites would know he is God, so the Egyptians would know he is God, and that the whole world would be put on notice that Yahweh is Lord. Tony Meredith says there are two ways God can be glorified in someone's life, in his just judgment and his saving mercy. In his just judgment and his saving mercy. And we see both of those in the Exodus story. We see the just judgment of the Egyptians and the saving mercy for the Israelites. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that all the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind. And they said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and lost their services. They're looking around in the fields and they're going, there's no one to work the fields. They're looking around at all the cities. They're going, there's no one to make any bricks. What did we do? We just lost our entire workforce in one fell swoop. Who's going to do our stuff? And so we see that even though they repented and they said, We'd sin against the Lord, and they sent away the Israelites. Now, when they face the normal things of life, they turn back. It's a false repentance. We see this in our lives, too. Sometimes we're more afraid of the consequences than they are if something's right or wrong. And when the consequences are removed, we go right back to those behaviors. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers on all of them. Now, interestingly, during that time, there was two different types of chariots. And so what it seems, there's a four-spoke chariot and a six-spoke chariot. seems he's got the 600 of the best chariots, but then it also says, along with all the other chariots. So he's amassing this huge, fast 
army. The chariot was like the tank of the old days. It was the most advanced military weapon that existed. And so as he takes these trained warriors with advanced weaponry, he goes out to attack this tribe of shepherds and bricklayers who have no ammo. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so they pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. <laughs> they were already marching out in, in, in battle formation. And he pursued him. And the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, all of his chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near Piharoth, opposite of Baal Zaphon. So remember, the Israelites had just witnessed God do all these miracles. They marched out boldly, ready to serve the Lord. Ready, ready to fight for the Lord. They left Egypt with their animals, their stuff, their firstborn kids, and untold riches. Surely, when they see the Egyptian army, they will laugh and say, Don't they realize who our God is? Well, maybe you know the story. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord. Don't we do that, though? We've seen God's faithfulness. We've seen Him provide. We've experienced His grace and His mercy and joy. But when uncertain times come, we freak out. On Wednesday, Sandy and the boys, uh, our, our son right now is uh, doing uh, um, driver's training. It's this thing where uh, parents freak out while the son drives and, and uh, stresses. But she decided to take a trip up to, Ma- up to the Mackinac Bridge and back just on Wednesday just to get him a lot of driving hours, because we don't know once he moves out, how he's going to get his driving hours. When they got up on the other side of the Mackinac Bridge, the check engine light came on. Now I'm down here. I'm working. I'm freaking out, okay? First I said, don't let him drive all the check engine lights on. Thinking all the things that I'm thinking, okay, I'm thinking of our budget. Oh, man, what are we going to do if we got to do this? I'm, I'm freaking out about all this stuff. I'm looking up all the auto zones and everything where we can get it checked out, all that kind of stuff. And in that moment... I was just freaking out for no reason. I mean, what's the, what's the worst thing that can happen? I've got to drive up and get them. We've got to get a new vehicle. And that would all be rough. I wouldn't like enjoy any of that. But, but in that moment, I mean, God has always provided for us. God has always taken care of us. God has always given us what we need. But in that moment, I freaked out. And I cried out to the Lord, God, let it be just something stupid. Please. When the car has almost 200,000 miles on it's probably but it's a Honda. They go forever. You know, let it just be some little thing. Turns out, like, the, the light just turned off by itself, so who knows. <laughs> they, did, they did get it checked out. It was something, but probably nothing. But the point is, even when we see God's faithfulness, even though we've seen it years after years after years, when a hard time comes, when something unexpected comes, our first reaction is to freak out. And the Israelites did that. First they freaked out at God, and then they freaked out at Moses. They said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt? Now, this is an interesting statement. A lot of you have been to museums. What are the Egyptians known for? I mean, the pyramids, all these things are these beautiful, massive graves to honor their pharaohs. And I say, is it that there weren't even enough graves in Egypt? Maybe they were the ones making the graves. That you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. Remember from last week why God was going to 
why he said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can serve me or worship me. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. (laughs) That's pretty dramatic. Psalm 106 said, We have sinned even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses. And they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. In uh, two weeks, we're going to begin, once school starts, we're going to begin a series on the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. And one of those parables is on the four soils. And the, the sower sows the, the, the seed on all the different soils, and, and one of them is the path. And on the path, the evil one snatches it away. On the rocky ground, it starts to, starts to grow, but when trouble or hardship come, it falls away. See, sometimes... We have, we're like, okay, I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm going to follow the Lord, and then as soon as hardship comes, we just drop out. That's essentially what the Israelites were doing. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never see, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need to only be still. He says three commands, don't be afraid, stand firm, and be Still. Now it's hard to see in the English, but in the Hebrew, the language here, Moses is rebuking the people. He's saying, look, God promised to be faithful. He will be faithful. He's going to bring us out. There's no reason to doubt God. Don't fear. Stand firm and be still. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you. He didn't say, take up arms, go to battle. He said, be still. The Lord will fight for you. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. That's interesting. God rebukes Moses. Now, we don't know if that's because Moses left something out that he cries out to the Lord or if Moses, as the representative of the people, God is speaking to him because of the rejection of the people. So God gives him an impossible task. Move on. And they're like, where? <laughs> There's a big sea. How are we going to move on? And God tells Moses to raise his staff and divide the sea. And in the words of Jesus, with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. Verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. All of this is to bring glory to God. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front of them and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Now it's interesting, in Exodus 13 the cloud is identified as the Lord. In Exodus 14:24 it says the Lord looked down from the cloud. Isaiah 63, which we just wrote, or read, um, seems to identify the cloud with the Holy Spirit. Exodus 3 identifies the angel of the Lord with potentially the pre-incarnate Christ. So whatever is going on here, the presence of God is protecting the Israelites. God is standing between them 
and their enemy. And on one hand, he's causing darkness to the Egyptians. On the other hand, he's providing light and security to the Israelites. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Did I skip? I skipped something, didn't I? Sorry. We're going to go back. Verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. None of them survived. Now, interesting when this happened, um, this is, so they're going along at night, and then at daybreak, the Egyptians pursued them. You guys remember from a couple weeks ago, the primary god of the Egyptians was Amon-Ra, the sun god. So right when daybreak comes, the Egyptians get excited. Our god is going to give us victory. They go, and they're utterly defeated. Now it's interesting, the, the liberal scholars would argue that the Israelites just walked through a few inches of, of water, and they would say they went through the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea. And there was this liberal preacher that was preaching in a conservative church. And he told this story, and one of the people in the congregation praised God. He said, praise God. God. God had the Israelites walk through on dry ground with the sea around them. And the, the liberal pastor who was visiting that day said, well, you know, I don't believe in miracles. Actually, what happened was they went through the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, and it was only a few inches of water, so they just walked across the inches of water. And the guy yelled out, praise God, drowning them Egyptians in just a few inches of water. Verse 29, I just read it, but what's interesting is that the, the language here for, for the, the wall of water is the same language for a wall on a fortress in Hebrew. So there's this wall of water on the right and on the left, and God saves the, Egypt, or the, the Israelites from the Egyptians. Verse 31, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses and in His servant. God's purpose in all this was to show that he was Lord. He was sovereign. He was God. And so the Israelites trusted the Lord and also put their trust in Moses. And I think in this we can see the grace of God. You look at the story of the Israelites, they are not people that we necessarily want to emulate. They're people that lack faith, that are full of fear, and yet God chose them. And yet God saved him. It was by his mercy that he saved the Israelites, not because they were deserving of his salvation. And we are in that same place. We aren't deserving of the salvation of God, but God gives it freely. So three big takeaways. One, God's way is best. God didn't take them the quickest way. He didn't take them the easiest way. But he taught them the way that they needed to go so they learned to trust him. So the question today is, do you trust Him? Do you trust Him in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the difficulty, when your back is against the wall, when your enemies are approaching? Second, we don't need to live in fear. The Israelites were against the wall with no salvation in sight until God intervened. They needed to cross from death to life. John 5, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. See, the goal of every major religion in the world is to cross over from death to life. And the thought process of most religions is to do that, I have to do enough good things, I have to pray the right prayers, I have to do the right religious rituals, and if I do all those things, I can cross from death to life. But the story of the Scripture is that we are against the wall. There is no way to cross. It is completely impossible without God providing a way. The Israelites had no chance unless God separated the sea and provided a way of salvation. And we find ourselves in that same exact place, separated from God by our sin. And so God sent His Son to die. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. We were separated from God with an impossible chasm. And yet Jesus provided a way. See, the good news of the Bible is actually that we can't make it across. All these other religions say, well, you can if you do enough good things, but we know we're, we're flawed human beings. We're going to make mistakes. The Israelites were full, were full of flaws. But just like the Exodus story, the best news is that God made a way. God provided a way for us to get to Him. In the words of Philip Ryken, the only Red Sea experience that really matters is the one that Jesus had when He passed through the walls of death and came out victorious on the other side. So the question is, do you know Jesus? Have you been set free? Are you still standing against the sea and wondering how you're going to be saved? Jesus provided the way. He crossed the chasm. The Son of God came down to this earth to die, to pay for our sins so that we could have eternal life. The Scriptures say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus has made that way. And lastly, God's presence makes all the difference. God was with with the Israelites as they left Egypt. He was with them as the army of Pharaoh approached. He was with them as he crossed the Red Sea. And he was with them as the sea came crashing down on the Egyptian army. And God is with us now. When Jesus was born, one of the names given to him was Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus promised that it's better that I leave you because I'm going to send who? The Holy Spirit to be with you. God's presence is what made the difference for the Israelites. And His presence is what makes the difference in our lives. And the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit for your inheritance, as a guarantee to seal you for the day of redemption. See, the reality is God, in His sovereignty, knows what's best. And He might not stop the tree from falling on your fence. And He might not remove the cancer. And He might not heal your body. But in that, what He does promise is that He is with you. He promises to be with you. Whether your check engine light comes on or your car keeps going, fine. Whether life is full of hardships or life is full of joys, God promises, draw near to Me and I will draw near to Me. God calls Himself the one who is close to the brokenhearted. And so when you walk through this life and it seems like the path is long 
the distance is wrong, the journey is hard, know God is with you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these reminders. Lord, I need them in my life. Lord, you've been so faithful to me all these years, and yet sometimes in those moments where just even something little, like a check engine light comes on, I immediately freak out and I I lose perspective. And that's just a minor thing, Lord. For, For some in this congregation, maybe they're facing a really major thing. And in the midst of that major thing, they're doubting, God, are you here? Are you with me? Do you care? But we've seen through this narrative time and time again that you care that you're there, that you love them, and that you're with them. So Lord, help us to walk in faith with those truths today. In your name we pray. Amen.